And welcome back once again to the Ryder Brothers. Tonight I am joined by my usual guests, my co-host, as well as uh, my good friend Curion, which in residence. Gentlemen, welcome back to the show. How are you this evening? Very good, very good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing great. I, I'm showing up here uh, enough. I'm starting to feel like the uh, the writer, like stepbrother, or cousin, or something like that. So this is awesome. Yeah, well, we'll definitely have to think of a of an official, more official title for you. Tonight, we're going to be discussing uh, the latest and greatest of Apple TV's severance. And man, have we got a lot to unpack with that just by itself. But then after that, we will be taking a look at Apple TV's Macbeth and the Academy Award winner for Best Picture, Apple TV's Coda. So why don't we go ahead and dive right in to uh, Severance. Oh, of course. Um, one second. Um, so why don't we go ahead and dive right into Severance. So, John, why don't you go ahead and start us out with uh, with your thoughts on that today. Severance. I really enjoyed the character development of this last episode. Uh, we finally got to see Irving and the other characters actually, uh, what's the word, like, express themselves as their innies. Um, we, we finally have a cause to get behind. Each of the individual characters feels a lot more, like, like they all have their own reasons for fighting the system. And I feel like even though it took until episode seven for us to get there finally, I feel like it was well worth the wait. Like the time they took to get to know each person now that they're fighting something, I really want to see them fight. Absolutely. I feel like now we have, we've now got enough value on each of the characters. Um, you know, we, we, we not only understand why they're fighting, but we we're cheering them on now. We, we definitely feel like, it's not only reasons, but they're good reasons and they're legitimate reasons. Whoever's been writing this has done some really deep character work and it's really starting to pay off now, especially with the conflicts that we're seeing between some of the characters and their reasoning and their logic for, for going through all of this. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, John, why don't you continue to share some of your thoughts? Yeah, um, I, I really enjoyed the fact that these characters have a much more personal justification for their fighting, um, for their arguments, for why they're trying to dissent uh, or causing dissent. But at the same time, like, I'm starting to question who the big bad really is. Because as we've discussed in previous episodes, we know that Cobell and even Milicek are both seemingly entirely severed. Like, whatever history they may or may not have had doesn't exist anymore. And that interests me in such a way that, like, if they're not the big bad, who is? But at the same time, how are they going to react to the rebellion? Like, are they going to be willing to put it down or are they going to fight back? And that, to me, seems very hard to guess, even this late in the series. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually wondering if 
they are fully severed or if their, for lack of a better term, their version of an Audi is actually the big bad and is directing their innies to not necessarily be the big bad. Wow, that is... <laughs> that just put me in a different mind entirely. So they're out, like when they say praise Kier, one of them might actually actively be Kier. Exactly. On, and they don't even know. Oh, man, that is such a circle of thought. That they're controlling theory. themselves and working for themselves without exactly. being both people. <laughs> That's an even trippier version of events. Like, how does that work? Well, when you think about it, right, the best way to make sure that, you know, the, the top or the, the mastermind stays out of the day-to-day affairs is make him seem like a, a mid-tier employee, right? Like a middle manager almost. So that everyone assumes, well, he's not the one pulling the shots or like calling the shots. He's just executing the behaviors that he's been taught, been told to. But in reality, he's actually the one who's calling the shots. Keeps him kind of safe in a weird way. Yeah, it, it, it definitely does keep him safe especially because we don't know if it's a him or not because they keep calling it the board and you don't exactly. even you don't hear the responses from the board other than that just eerie static and then oh that just makes me it feels like I haven't even watched the whole show now that I feel like I have to go back and rewatch it from that perspective to see if maybe that's the real thing that's going on. Is like, what if the macro dot people are the ones doing this to each other? That would, oh my goodness, that's wild. That's <laughs> that's such a fun thought. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be the first series to pull something like this. Um, the ending to Dollhouse was very similar, and I'm seeing a lot of parallels between Dollhouse and Severance now that I've kind of gone through both of them a few more times just to see that. So I'm wondering if that's going to be part of the twist of this. Yeah. I I feel like that would be such an interesting twist to do in this because even though we're getting the chance to see like say Mark and his Audi, uh, we, and we even saw somebody like actually retire I think it changes everything in terms of which one is the one that's in charge. And yeah, that's that's such a bizarre thought in terms of whether or not they're actually are they rebelling if it is against themselves, like do they just need a video to put them back in their place and restart or or do they just need to get severed from this version of severance to go back to the beginning? I really wonder. Well, I, I was figuring that one of the, the, the characters, it, there's a very good chance that one of them is actually either a member of the board or the board. Um, the The logic being that it insulates them in a very unique way in that Everyone figures, well, they're like they're just middle management or there's somebody that they know couldn't possibly be on the board and using that severance tech or that severance idea 
um, so that they they avoid suspicion from being the actual head of the company. Yeah, and and that would definitely make a lot of sense. Um, I, I did find it interesting how Irving basically called out Milicek right to his face that oh, you know, he's not severed or. Unless, you know, we find out that they're permanently severed. That that still remains to be seen. Um, I, I was a very good... Just, just a lot happened in this episode overall. But, man, did I not see the, the twist ending coming. That was quite the surprise. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean... Uh, Definitely yeah. baffled. I was also surprised that... Uh, I forget his name every time. Mr. Grainer. I, I had to go back and rewatch that episode, episode six again, just so I could figure out how, like, they'd gotten in the same room and then he just kills him right out the gate. I was so surprised by that just attack. It didn't feel... It just didn't feel like it was part of the story until it was... And it suddenly changed the whole dynamic of the events. Like, the people that are trying to re, uh, reintegrate people or put them back together, they just didn't seem, they didn't seem coordinated until now. Like, she knew exactly what she was doing, even though Mark had no idea. That was so weird. I, I really want to know who that person yeah, is. Yeah, I, I definitely don't story. think she's. I don't think she's working alone. I think there's more to what she's doing and who's helping her out that that we have yet to be exposed to. And I did think that that it was. Yeah, I agree with you. That was kind of interesting. That she just her immediate response was to just kill him and not even give it a second thought. And so it, it's like okay. Now we're back to Carrie Owen's theory of, of exactly who are the bad guys, but then who who are we supposed to be rooting for? I mean, I'm definitely rooting for the Innies at this point because they, they, they've clearly been drugged through the ringer, and so now they have a cause, which I'm very excited about to, to see how this, this the rest of this season is definitely going to... Uh, I'm excited, and I definitely think they're that it's... I'm less worried about the mystery box writing than I was when we started this venture. And I definitely think that the characters and the story were all well thought out. And I think that that's exactly what we see playing out right now. So it's, it's good. I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it so far. Yeah. I I think those, uh, the, the word, the worrisome mystery boxes at the beginning of them actually did have a real plot behind it. And we're seeing those opened and actually going somewhere. It definitely feels like the entire series has been at the very least plotted out, if not written completely. Um, so they know where they want to take this. And it, it's very clear that this is not just a uh, bunch of writers sitting in a room panicking going, okay, well we got to come up with filler for the next episode and we need to do it right now. I think, uh, they knew where they were going with this from day one. Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with that. Go ahead, Parker. So, uh, so how do we think this is going to play out? What what kind of theories do we think we have for for this one? And, and what do we what do you think it looks like as far as how this uh, how this one wraps up? Uh, to be honest, I have no idea where this is going to go, especially 
because now that like we've really been talking about it for every week, I really think about the emotion, the importance of emotion on their job, but the complete lack of emotion while working. And I wonder if that's something we've just completely missed throughout the whole series so far. Is that what if, especially with Carrie Owen's opinion, in terms of if they're controlling themselves or if one of them is controlling all of them, what if the emotional thing, like the, the part where the emotions are what tells them where to put the boxes, the emotions are what tell them what numbers to collect, what if that is what makes Cobell go off, where she says... I did that because I knew you could handle it and you needed it. To me, that just sparks so many thoughts on like, how does she judge that? Was it just her, you know, justifying herself, which is what most of us do when we have an outburst? Or was it a scheduled anger moment? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where this is going. I don't either. Go ahead. I have a feeling that by the last episode of this of this season, we're going to lose one of the innies. We're not he's not gonna lose his Audi, but we're going to lose one of the innies. Something is gonna happen where one of the one of our main characters, one of the characters we're really rooting for, is going to die. But death in this series is kind of weird because if you you know you can kill off the innie without necessarily killing off the Audi, and we could see that innie coming back again next season as a brand new innie. That's so such a I think, weird. Yeah, that's a real thing <laughs> with this story. Yeah, no, that's that's I'm, quite the mind blower right there. So I, I have a feeling that that's what we're going to see in the last episode. One of the innies is going to die and is going to be replaced by a brand new version of their, their innie. Um, for lack of a better term, they're going to get like a, a reset of some sort, right? Are you saying so um, like a resever and they have to start the whole process over again? I think so. Do you think they could do that without the group noticing, or do you think the whole group would get reset at different stages? Oh, no, I think the group is going to notice, but they're now going to be stuck in a situation with, well, is this new, well, new any a mole? Is he, are they actually working for the board now? Do we know? Is there any way to tell? Yeah, why are they so, so the special half- to come back? Petey didn't come back. Exactly. That's so interesting. I think think playing off of that, I think it's going to be Dylan. I think Dylan's going to be the one that, that if they, if they go that route, he's going to be the one that they select to, to kill and then resever. And then they're going to give him this whole, like, you know, you're a secret agent and you're finding out what these people are up to, but they think that you're this type of person. So you need to behave this way. And that's what's that's what's gonna you know that's what's gonna happen because I mean Dylan's the candidate for that right like he's the one who right. keeps coming up with the crazy theories of oh you know my Audi is probably a total badass on the outside world and so what better way to bring him back or have him already set up to be that person from the get go 
Like, for all we know, there could already be a mole within their group the entire time, and they've just been kind of, I don't know, sleeping on it. It's, that's, that that really has a lot of implications, Curion. That's, that's a great, that's a fantastic theory, honestly. Because um, now that's got us talking about it, and, and that, the implications with that are endless, because now it's like, how many how many other people could they do this for where they kill them and then bring them back and how many times is you know they, for all we know that's been Irving's life say he, that he's been there the longest well the longest time is 2 years and we Great. don't know how long the Mark's been there too been around. say again that's it uh, it was finally explained so Irving's 3 years Mark's at 2 this is oh, okay. this the order of hierarchy Dylan somewhere between Mark and Irving and the new and Heli, but Heli's the newest. Yeah, but I think Mark was newer than Dylan. That's a, Dylan is definitely the prime candidate for Cure because his Audi was so okay with being put in the closet for that like moment, and he like he didn't even care about Milicek being in his house manhandling his son. He was just like, "Are we good? I'm going to go back to mm-hmm. watching TV." Like. He, are we good? Like he was aware of the the royal we in the group. That my question though with the the resevering is, I feel like they would have to take the whole group down. Like hell, like I feel like it would start with like season two. Hell is back on the table, and instead of Mark ever remember Petey, he's set back to like a different time as well. And maybe Dylan or Irving takes over as the trainer and they do all the training. And so like, we just don't see how, like, like I feel like Mark and Helly are two independent people versus Irving and Dylan are very like, okay with this whole event until Dylan became like, I got to see who my son is. See the, the reason why I don't think they have to reset everybody it has a very interesting critique on corporate paranoia. Um, again, don't know how much work you guys have done in like big corporate America uh, kind of companies, but Serve that's the biggest a corporation constant. known as the U.S. military. Yeah, well, there you go. So yeah, you're well aware that like, you know, somebody comes back after a meeting with officers, and you're always wondering, well, what exactly happened in that meeting, right? You know, and. and Paranoia is one of those things that can definitely come up, especially if after somebody comes back from like a large meeting or something, um, somebody else gets in trouble or gets disciplined for something because then you wonder, well, have I got a snitch with me? Right. Yeah. So they won't mention anything until, you know, they're absolutely certain that that person isn't a snitch. Yeah, Yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, and it, it's like a Tarkin doctrine, like fear will keep them in line, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and not not to mention, it could be that the person that gets resevered, i.e., Mark, everybody else is living with that memory of this is what happens to you until it happens to one of the other ones. End of season two, you know, like oh, now it's Dylan this time, or it, it, just any of the characters getting resevered tells everybody else. Keep messing around. We'll do it again. Yep. That and and it's that's such a terrible feeling, especially when you take in that corporate thought of like, 
well, we tried to give you the chance to be the boss. Now you're back to being the day one newbie. So that's so scary. John, so I think I think I think we may be on to something here. I could see season one wrapping up with a very satisfying ending, and then season two is probably going to open up ex- pretty much the same as season one. And and I think you're going to be right. I think you're right, John. I think there's going to be a reshuffling of jobs. And then we're going to be like, well, what uh, what happened this time? And then it's going to be figuring out that, oh, so the victory that you thought you had in season one? No, that's what that's what the that's what the board was wanting the whole time. They were actually, you know, in control of the situation from the get go. They just made it look like, oh, the good guys won. At least I don't know. That's that's just what I think could happen. Yeah, if you go back to the pictures, if you go back to all of the. I guess it would be gossip that Dylan's spreading, like he remembers that there was a war maybe, or he's heard rumors that there was some kind of internal war. And then if you also add in that whole mousetrap theory that you had last episode, it makes it even worse because like, what if the whole goal is to just figure out how to get these people to listen and they just know they're not there yet? Like, they have to redo a couple of things, change the system a little bit, give it a couple tweaks every once in a while to get it to peak control, and they know they're still experimenting on that peak control. That's terrifying. Yeah. No, the, the, the show's still... Okay, so of course the other big, uh, big reveal was the fact that the pregnant lady was possibly severed for the duration of her pregnancy. Yeah. Any additional thoughts? I mean, this episode really just was a huge exposition dump, but man, was it exciting all the way through. Um, just the whole, <laughs> the whole implication of creating a second consciousness just for nine months, and that's all it exists to do is go through the pregnancy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> now, now we're really getting into the implications of this show. Yeah, and I mean, we're also getting into the, like, sci-fi-ish implications of the technology, right? Like, if you had the ability to pick a section of your life and just cut that out temporarily and leave, like, a other you to go deal with that, would you choose to do it for anything, for any sort of scenario? Something that was just uncomfortable or, you know, would you rather experience your life as lived? A life of that, eternal bliss. Yeah, it's like is... any... Like, I mean, imagine a, an environment or a world where you could set your brain up so that any time you feel like just the littlest bit of pain, an alternate you takes over and deals with that. Or, say, a crisis, an alternate you takes care of that. And then when everything's calmed back down, you go back to happy-go-lucky you. So That's that, crazy. you know... All right, Continue. but I mean that's that, that's the interesting question sci-fi gets to ask. Like mm-hmm. would you choose to do this if you had the technology available? It's so crazy cuz that like ties in with the CIA's MK Ultra in terms of like trying to create sleeper agents that are literally sleeping until necessary. And if that's what this whole thing is about is like them 
you know, developing that, like they did it with the nine months of pregnancy and she didn't wake up any of the labor, any of the, the actual physical stress of going through pregnancy wasn't enough to override the code. That's like kind of what you need in your sleeper agent is like once they go active, no matter what they get into, they never wake up. That's so, it's just, it, it keeps be, like making the world possibly bigger and more painful, but also so much more worth watching. Well, yeah, I mean, 100%. Speaking of MK Ultra, I mean, literally imagine an agent that has plausible deniability for anything you have them do because you simply switch them off and they have no knowledge of whatever they're being accused of. Because how could they? Yeah, and not to mention, like, turning them off of sleeper mode while they're being tortured. So they literally cannot answer questions because they literally were not there. And then turn it back on when they're free. Like, they send a code, like, "Uh, boss, I'm going to be late today. And then it's like, and now they're back as, you know, James Bond. That's so, it's such a cool, it's a a cool idea but also a terrible one because then it's like who isn't a sleeper agent anymore yeah this this is quickly becoming technology that i hope remains forever imaginary because uh (laughs) (laughs) this is not something i want to ever have to deal with in the real world um nor would you remember dealing with it i mean i would definitely i definitely wouldn't mind like i don't know if i'd go so far as to sever myself from work but if i could like you know create a gym bro personality I think I could probably do that, you know, just have a guy who exists for 45 minutes a day to go to the gym and, and, you know, that, that, that might, that might be something worth considering, but a full on eight hour workday, that's a third of your life that while we do, you know, more or less give it up at the workplace, is that really worth not remembering because your brain's going to forget about it anyway. So it just sucks when you're in the moment doing the grind. But when you go home, at least when I go home, you know, I, to quote Ted Lasso, I try to be a goldfish. You know, it's, 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 the day's over. It's time to move on. So I don't know. I I just, the, the idea sounds good, but as this show continues to explore and as we've actually just explored ourselves, even just talking about it, the implications are very, very bad. (laughs) Well, yeah, especially if you think about just losing 45 minutes in that sleeper window, like when you go to the, your body goes to the gym What's to say it didn't leave? What's to say it didn't get grabbed? What's to say you didn't lose your wallet? And you you can never go back to those 45 minutes and be like, oh, that's where I put it. No, you're it's gone. Although yeah. it does kind of remind me of uh, being in university and uh, the difference between drunk Mike and sober Mike. Because drunk Mike was kind of awesome to sober Mike. He'd always like leave a sandwich or whatever for the morning. So, like, I was always a big fan of Drunk Mike, and I'd, you know, wake up in the morning and, like, there'd be, like, food or or what have you all prepared for the day, and I'd be like, way to go, Drunk Mike. Like, way to plan ahead. So, you know, I guess it depends on on your your alternate mode, I suppose, right? Yeah, it depends on which one is more in charge and which one loves the other one more. (laughs) Yeah. Because it feels like... In this case, Audi Mark is significantly more okay with the system just 
because it has been doing him a lot of favors, and so he doesn't put himself through hell every night. But he does always seem to come in regularly hungover. And I think that plays a major, like, effect on the innie. They're like, well, if my Audi's always hungover, does that mean they're a, a desperate drunk? Like, drunk on the outside? Or does that mean that they're going through a thing I'm not going through? And at that point, like, that causes that dissent, even if it's not, like, entangled. Absolutely. I mean, literally, we're watching Mark get away with a life free of consequence, right? Mm-hmm. He he doesn't have to worry about being hungover. He doesn't, you know, really work for his money when you think about it. The the money just magically appears as far as Audi Mark is concerned, right? He He's like, you know, he sleeps for eight hours. He gets to party for eight hours. And then as far as he's concerned, he sleeps for eight hours, and then parties for eight hours. If you had a life like that, you know, would you care what happened to your work life? Really? You know, would you value the the party part of your life that you get? Yeah, and I think that's it's something this show is actually taking the time to, like, question, especially in Mark. Because it's not until his whole world starts fighting the fact that he's severed, that he finally starts on the outside feeling like maybe, just maybe he did it wrong. Like the few, the episodes where he's talking to Pete, he's like, no, I'm doing this because I need to just not let the sorrow of losing my wife ruin my work life. And because of that, he's just constantly, like he has every reason to love it, but now the whole world around him, like his girlfriend, the concerts, losing Petey, Petey even showing up in the first place, this other lady showing up now, all of them are like, no, wake up, like shaking him awake. And it's like we're watching him take a long time to get there. Whereas like his Annie, it only took like four or five instances. And he suddenly was like, I'm going to be on my team side before I'm going to be on my boss's side. Yeah. It's interesting. Definitely, definitely. A lot of lot of good discussion. I'm I'm me and who knows what we can expect to with tonight's episode and, and, and follow on episodes. But uh as we mentioned on our social media, this is uh tonight is, is pretty much an Apple TV uh showcase, so to speak. But I guess that's what happens when you create good content, right? So with that we're gonna go ahead and uh move into our next subject. Um the uh, Latest take on Shakespeare's classic, The Tragedy of Macbeth, starring Denzel Washington. Corion, why don't we uh, get us started on this segment? Tell us your thoughts. Well, um, I really liked that it followed the original play, you know, fairly closely. I don't think they deviated too much from the the original content uh, when it came to the plot and how everything played out. Um, You know... As a personal thing, um, you know, so like I said, it doesn't really deviate. Um, for those of you who didn't study it in high school, the basic premise is a gentleman who is already a, a, a thane or a lord is basically told by a group of witches that he will become king. Uh, and 
His wife finds out that this prophecy exists and decides to try to make that prophecy a reality. So it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy with him killing the king, winding up in that position, and then a new prophecy coming along and him himself being killed in almost a sim- in, in a very similar fashion to him to his uh, killing of the king is he is in turn turned upon. So great idea for uh, a series of course it's Shakespeare it's classic literature. Uh, there's a reason why these things are the classic. Um, everyone has interesting, unique reads on this, especially when you go into it. Uh, for example, my thesis obviously was that the, the witches are in fact the actual heroes of the story because they were trying to warn everyone off and just no one would listen to them. Oh yeah, but that's totally, my take. Totally don't have a personal bias on that now or anything. I uh, no, not, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, but you know, that that's where I see it. I thought it was a fantastic rendition of it. Um, I thought the characters were well were very well portrayed. Um, I myself have never been a part of a reenactment, like a, a a redo of this play, but uh, I have seen it many times. I thought the actors were fantastically cast in the roles, and generally, I was pretty happy with it. Uh, what did you guys think? So I, I studied Macbeth way, way back in, in my uh, uh, junior year of high school. And so that was the last time I read it, which was many, many years ago. Um, so I went into this kind of, I wouldn't say blind, but familiar enough with the story. I mean, I mean one thing about Shakespeare is, is while he did have a good way with words, a lot of his plots were fairly similar, which, I mean being the the big show in town every week that's not a huge deal it's just something to note that that a lot of his plays either his tragedies would either end up well you know tragic to the to the bitter end or his uh his comedies would end up with everybody everybody's married at the end which is it's how he chose to tell a story it is what it is um the second that we started watching this um i absolutely enjoyed the entire thing the artistic value of this of this um, of this version of the play alone really makes it stand out as its own product. Um, Danzel was fantastic. I don't think anybody else could really properly make Shakespeare come off so casually the way that he does with his with his you know his Denzel personality. And that really played into it because it, it, it no longer comes off as, you know, the, the formal play where we all sound intelligent and, and we, we make ourselves seem more than what we are. No, this was like, okay, yes, we're going to keep the original, um, the original writing and the original dialogue as it was written. However, Danzel's going to be Danzel in the process, and I think that worked. I think what also really works for this movie is the fact that it's basically a play that's a movie. Okay, I know that sounds kind of... What am I trying to say here? First of all, it was filmed entirely on sound stages. So they basically... They must have had this idea that they were going to take a play, and they were, instead of like... 
instead of like when you watch a play like Hamilton, for example, where it's like they put cameras in the theater and you're taking shots of the different members. That's that's fine way to do a product. That's not a, a problem. They decided to take that and they decided to make it a movie at the same time. So we have a, a really good combination of a play that's actually adapted into a film, but it still has that play aspect. You hear the churning on of the different stage lights. They have different sound effects that, that they're not trying to hide the fact that this is taking place on a, on a stage. And so it's like you are allowed, it's like you're going to the theater to watch a play, but instead of having to, you know, squint from the way back cheap seats, you're in it. And it doesn't take away from the fact that it's a stage production. And I think that is what really just, and we have, and that's really what drives it home for me as, as why I think it was an amazing, it really is a masterpiece. I can't disagree with that assessment. And I have nothing but praise for everyone who, who did this. Shakespeare is not easy to perform. Um, having done a little bit of reenactment in my high school projects of studying my various Shakespeare plays. So this, this is just fan. This is a fantastic piece of work by everybody involved. Um, real quick though, just to touch on one of the aspects, uh, I've seen some complaints of people calling, you know, the whole thing, a race swap nonsense. Okay. Here's the thing, guys. It's a stage play. If you have a stage production, you use whoever auditions. And ever since Shakespeare hit, you know, started way back in the day over the years, a lot of different people have played different roles throughout the years and that's okay. And I think that's really what this movie does a great job of showing is that it's not about what the people look like. It's about how well they capture the essence of the characters. And I think even shooting it in grayscale was taking it a step further and really just showing guys, it's about the story. It's about the characters. Stop making a big deal about what they look like and just enjoy the show. And that's what I did. And I, I may watch this again sometime in the future. I think this is, I may want to own a hard copy of this because I really liked it. And as far as a Shakespeare adaptation goes, um, yeah, this is, this is definitely up there as, as one of, if not the best, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, my, my general yeah. rule of thumb when it comes to race swapping is if the actor who is swapped, like if, if the actor who doesn't necessarily look like the traditional way you would view this character who swapped in is really good in the role, then it's fine. You know, genius is like an affirmative defense here. If it's absolutely quality, if, you know, like, uh, for example, in Dune, uh, they gender swapped uh, kinds. And I was originally concerned about it, but then I actually watched it and went, yeah, no, she was fantastic in the role. It makes total sense. I would have probably done the same thing if I was the casting director. Yeah, so, and same with same with shot. changing changing Starbuck to Kara Thrace in in the in the sci-fi BSG. I mean, you know, yeah, I was like, well, yeah, and I was actually as a kid, I was a fan of the original Starbuck, and so like I was like, I'm just gonna make her a, him a girl. I'll come on, and uh, well, they didn't do that for the sake of doing that. They did that, and they really worked well with the character on that and so that 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 ended up working out just fine and i think that's similar what you got here it's not it all right john go ahead oh yeah no my biggest thing i especially when it comes to the whole race switching thing um if you really want to be true to shakespeare then we need to play all females by men because women can't act 
That's what Shakespeare wrote the play for. I I, I need to clarify to the audience. I'm nodding in agreement with the point you're making, not that that we should go back to all males only in any of those. To me, you can't you can't be mad about race if you're not first going to be mad about the genders because that's what changed first, whether it was Patrick Stewart's rendition of Macbeth or the 2015 one, which was the one I watched before this one. Like, if you think that the original display was the best display, then you can only enjoy Macbeth at Shakespeare in the Park. You can't enjoy it in any form on film. And if you enjoy any of the films, then your point is entirely wrong. Like, if race switching for this one is the one that, like, made you not enjoy it versus the 2015 one, which was mostly white people, like, you're dumb. There's there's no other way to put it because if you want... If you want everything to be the way it's always been, then that means that women aren't allowed to act, women aren't allowed to be on film, period, and you can't watch any Macbeth unless it's at Shakespeare in the Park. You can't watch any Shakespeare unless it's at Shakespeare in the Park. You can't watch any TV at all. You just period. can only no, go to stage productions with males only. Yes. It, yeah. Yes. And personally, no. I I loved this movie. I I thought that Macbeth especially this one versus the 2015 one, I love that they didn't try to change the words. And I think it's exactly what you said, Parker, in terms of just Denzel crushing it. Like, I didn't feel like Denzel became Macbeth. I feel like Macbeth finally came to life because Denzel did Macbeth. Alright, like, Patrick Stewart doesn't even come close to Denzel's Macbeth because... Denzel made it look like that's how he's always talked in every single one of his movies. And I, that, I, no, you, I felt like that should have bothered me. Like, why does he keep saying doth and hooth and thou? But I didn't say any of that until just now. Like, watching it, that never really crossed my mind until I think about breaking it down. Like, he was speaking the oldest of the old English... And I didn't care. I watched every line, every scene, and I loved it in every instance. And that, I think, is really what this film produ- like proved, is that the right actors with the right conviction will create the right film. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, you know, just getting to the point, like, if, you know, we've got a perfect character here or character study by Denzel in this pl- in this movie because in order to deliver the lines in that Denzel style he really had to understand his role he really had to understand the wording and he really had to understand the whole plot in order to make it make sense so you can tell he did his research and he's not the only one everybody had that level of understanding of what they were doing that even if your ability to translate Old English on the fly is not as great as it could be, the conviction that they're delivering the lines in gives you that. And yeah, not just and, and, and the whole reason I brought it up was because that was some of the from from certain folks that are follow some of the people that Corion and I are very familiar with. 
Um, that was their like one reason for not watching the movie. And I, I had, had to call them out. I'm like, you are depriving yourself of something great over something arbitrary and stupid. You, you just watch the movie and decide for yourself. And I, you know, like, like I said, from the second this thing started to the very end, my wife and I were enthralled. I think this is one of the best adaptations. And I hadn't even heard of the 2015 version. And if I did, it probably was unremarkable. Whereas this, like, came at you with the grayscale, the 4 by 3 and just all kinds of artistic stuff on top of an already great play. And I think it, it was perfect in enhancing the overall atmosphere and feel of the play. And it's just that there's... I. Man, I could probably just do a whole episode just on this show, or just on this movie alone, because if I was an English teacher, Apple just gave me a goldmine of content to work with if I was teaching Macbeth. I would literally, I would just study the play first, and then it would conclude with watching this movie, and then doing more case study, as you said, into just the, the adaptation and the perspective, because... Yes, while Denzel feels like Denzel, he does, as John said, I think this is probably the best iteration of the Macbeth character that has ever been seen, and I think even Shakespeare himself would be in awe of this production and this feature. I mean, let alone the fact that he's, you know, his work is still talked about to this day, but also just, just seeing it like this, I think this was a great tribute and is, is one of the best things to ever hit cinema. Yeah, I I definitely agree. I do think that your class is a little bit backwards. If it was up to me, I would do make everybody watch the uh, the older ones first, and then when the kids say, "Well, why does this matter?" I'd be like, "Just wait till the end of the lesson. Just wait till the end of the lesson. We'll start." The, like Denzel is, is he's one of my favorite actors of all time. Uh, he, he's everything he's done from Man on Fire to Towns to um, Equalizer. Just, Defense Equalizer, like Denzel is one of the Remember greatest the actors of our generation. Yeah, and Sorry, I think I'm just trying to help. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, my, but when it comes to this play, like I remember reading this one in high school and not caring until one of my teachers found this like different version of the uh, the play. Right, so it was rewritten into these pamphlets where they had jokes written off to the side like there's a reason this was a joke in that time and this is what they actually said in layman terms and that made me love shakespeare i was like oh i just don't understand his english it's a different english than mine just you know like living in the south versus living in the north you're gonna have a different version of english you're gonna have different idioms different jokes that work and this movie was the first time where i watched Macbeth in old english while feeling like I was both in now and watching what Shakespeare had intended from the beginning. Like, the way this movie was filmed and cut and cropped, I don't really feel like we were watching a movie about England. I feel like we were watching a series of stage transitions about a play about a story. Just blew my mind... That, like, I didn't need any world building. I didn't need any world enhancing. I just needed to listen and enjoy. And it was fun. And if you want to get a, a rough idea of how timeless this story is, 
do check out the 2006 version of the tragedy of Macbeth, where they set it up as a, um, a gangland style story, like a modern, uh, gangs kind of style story. Cause it translates these, a lot of Shakespeare's plays that aren't about Kings or specific individuals. You can put them in other genres and they still work. And that's a really quality be, quality thing to be able to do. If you can take your art and translate it into a completely different theme and it still works, you've tapped into something really deep and really good. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, uh, you know, it, whatever whatever the guy, I can't remember the names off the top of my head, um, the people who put this production together, I mean, I don't know if, if, if the style would work exactly the same, maybe try color or maybe, uh, maybe mess with some of the different coloration features, but I could definitely see this, this style, uh, working for a couple of other Shakespeare's plays or even just old classic plays to begin with. I mean, this, this integrated soundstage storytelling, I think is what really, really sold it to me as, as a as a perfect work of art was because it was so, like I said, it was a great integration of cinema and stage without having to like favor one or the other. And so I, I definitely would like to see another production. Um, what specifically, I don't, you know what you could do, you could do this. What you could do is this, you could take the soundstage idea, right? But then let's maybe try, I don't know if any of you ever saw or are familiar with the Broadway production of Beauty and the Beast. Maybe let's go like a Midsummer's Night Dream and go more extravagant with more colors, with like, you know, more, just just a lot more character and see if we can capture the, sim, you know, not necessarily the same feel, but if that magic really is there. Because this could be the future of telling all Shakespearean plays as well as just plays in general having just using sound stages because that's that's one of the parts of the illusion of of the theater is you're not really going for the effects usually you're going for the performances of the actors in person you're going for the story the the backdrops are just kind of there to like you know keep your interest um this allows for more integrated special effects but also keeping that sort of magic of the of the sound stage of the play stage at the same time, and so I would like to see more productions like this. I think it's fantastic overall. Any last thoughts yeah. on Macbeth before we move on? Yeah, I'd like to see Othello done in this style. I think that would really work well. I would like to see Othello maybe done in like grayscale with maybe some some blue tone or something along that you know just just touch the color because like yeah you could do it like this grayscale style exactly the same way if that's really what you want but then it'd feel like okay are we just copy pasting the same style or are we going to tweak it a little bit that's that's only my point is like i'd like to just see some tweaks some changes because this ah, it's perfect john any final thoughts uh i want to see these people's rendition of midsummer's night stream but just with more the, color oh yeah no it has to be i mean from puck to just the whole story is more bright and lively so i i just really want to see these people put together that play now because oh. like this just feels like a whole new shakespeare troupe actually you know what would be super cool do midsummer 
and have all the Fae be in color and everyone else in black and white. Yo. That would be awesome. Like, when Puck shows up, that's the only time there's actual color. And then when he disappears, that's, like, kind of like the transition to chaos. Oh, that's really fun. I like that. Yeah. No, I'd I'd watch that. I'd watch any. I honestly, Apple TV does Shakespearean plays. I'm probably going to watch them now automatically. Uh, Yeah, for sure. Real quick, before we get to our final segment, we're going to just take a few minutes here, and I'm going to I'm going to hijack the stream myself for a little bit. I'll say my piece, and then I'll bring the panel back on, and 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 we can all uh, we can get to get to our perspectives. didn't really want to bring too much attention to this, but it's been talked about a lot, so we'll go ahead and touch on it, especially since our, our next uh, discussion topic has to do with the Best Picture winner. Uh, of course, you may or may not have heard the slap heard around the world, or rather the slap scene around the world, and you may have an opinion on it, and that's okay. Opinions are, of course, what keeps us free as and what keeps us growing as a society is being able to express those ideas and share them, whether good or bad. And so with that, I would like to just share my ideas on the matter real quick. Look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you whether what occurred was right or wrong, whether who said said what, who went too far. What I'm going to say is that for myself, it's perfectly fine to have an opinion on an incident that takes place. It is perfectly fine for you to discern for yourself whether or not uh, Will Smith's actions were correct, whether or not Chris Rock's joke was went too far. It's perfectly fine to have that opinion for yourself. And for myself, I don't know that I would act any differently in that situation because, for one, I wasn't there, and for two, I wasn't the subject matter, and for three, I would think that any sane significant other would probably want to defend the honor of their significant other. And so what's important to remember here is at the end of the day, while this did take place on international television, is that... It's up to the person who was ultimately offended, the victim, Chris Rock, whether or not he wants to pursue action against Mr. Smith. And if he does, that is his choice to make on his own. The court of public opinion, as always, does not have any relevance when it comes to certain legal matters. And while I don't necessarily condone violence directly, I also don't really condone getting involved in other people's business. And as I said... You may have been offended by what happened, you may express your opinion, but it's not entirely appropriate to necessarily call for someone's arrest when you aren't the one who received the slap. And that's all I want to say on it. However, I do want to give the panel a chance to express their views. So, gentlemen, oh man, that's going to look bad. <laughs> gentlemen, I'm just going to put the screen on the back and I'm just going to you're just going to have to look at me while you share your thoughts for now. Corion, why don't you go ahead and take it away if you have a thought on the matter? Okay, I mean, now, personally, I've always felt that the appropriate way to respond to bad speech is with better speech. Um, So in this regard, I do feel like, um, you know, Will Smith may have set a very dangerous precedent here for future comedians to deal with. I understand his position. I understand reacting in that manner. I also think that, you know, as, you know, Chris Rock is the the damaged physically party, uh, yeah, it should absolutely be his call. And I would in- advise everyone to sit back 
and observe how this plays out and not try to force one's opinion on how it should play out on anyone else. Because at the end of the day, we are not the individuals involved. There is a fog of Hollywood, if you will, over this whole thing. It's still not entirely clear whether this was planned or staged or how much it was planned or staged. Um, So saying, well, cops should get involved or not get involved or saying we need to do this, that or the other thing is at the very least premature, especially when we don't have all the facts. So I definitely agree with you, PD. I, I personally feel like if this was fake, it sets a very dangerous precedent for the future for comedians who work like Chris Rock does, which is primarily on insult comedy. Um, I think it sets, if it was real, I think it also sets the exact same dangerous precedent. So overall, I don't think it was a good idea, but that's my opinion. Um, that being said, I understand the motivations of everybody involved. Um, I, without condoning the, the actions, I can understand. And I'm curious to see long-term how this affects both of their careers but I'm, I guess, I'm pretty happy to sit back and watch how it plays out and observe and give my opinion as it plays out without trying to force my opinion on others. I completely agree. John, go ahead. Honestly, um, I really just don't care. Um, I've watched people get hit for less. I've hit people for more. Um, if you're going to be the dork that's saying the police should get in there and arrest him, you're an idiot and a dork. Like if Chris Rock wanted to press charges, he can still press charges. They're still civil and, uh, even criminal, uh, it, it, it technically was an assault, but also like Chris Rock is a G. He doesn't care. He doesn't want the cops involved. Like, why would you want the dork police involved in your life just because you got slapped? Like, this wasn't a full-on bar brawl. This wasn't some kind of crazy fight. Anything beyond that, it's just ridiculous. And as for the whole mob trying to sway their opinion, if you let the mob win one, they'll win all. Because when the mob finally realizes the power that they have, they're coming for everybody's bike. Because they can, there's more of them than there are you. And that's the problem with letting the mob win for any reason whatsoever. Like, the mob can have their feelings. They can have them broadcast to the universe. But if the political establishment, if the government, if the police start following the way of the mob, A, everybody's going to jail, and B, nobody's a good person anymore. Period. Because we've all done wrong, we've all done bad, we all have probably a number of reasons why we should be removed from the society. So why don't we start having some empathy, forgive each other, take the emotions that the moment gave you, if you want to broadcast them, broadcast them, but don't expect your emotions to be answered with a solid rebuttal from anybody because there is nobody to answer you correctly chris rock laughed it off will smith laughed it off and then cried it off like you may or may not 
have witnessed a violent act, but if you think that's justification for your emotions to be repaired, get out of your own ego. Like, you don't matter that much. If you did, you would be on that stage too. Well, I mean, we, we do matter in our own special way. And, and John, you, your words have inspired me to conclude the, the segment with this. And that, you know what, we really hope that in the end they both patch things up and, and that there is there is forgiveness and that there isn't it, you know, there's, there's moving on from it. Because they both do have an opportunity to settle this like gentlemen in front of everybody and set the example of, you know what, this wasn't correct. It was the moment, but one, Chris Rock doesn't need to hold resentment against Will Smith. And two... Will Smith doesn't, uh, you know, he, he obviously feels some remorse about it. And in, in, so that's what we want is we want people to, to forgive and, and to move on. And, you know, we don't necessarily have to be a goldfish in this scenario, but it's it's between them to settle. And I hope that they do settle it with the best possible resolution. And, and, and that's that's really what we want in the end is, you know, either, try to either get that or pistols are gone. Either that or pistols at dawn would also be an acceptable resolution. I mean, I'm all for bringing back non-lethal dueling to settle stuff up. I mean, that's that's there, there yeah. was a, you know there are ways to do it. Yeah. But with that, we're going to go ahead and transition to uh, the uh, Academy Award winner for Best Picture, Coda. Coda is a story about a young high school student, high school senior who lives with her family, uh, which is entirely deaf, and she has been the sole. Perf- provider of translation and communication for her family the story itself while very intriguing is certainly not perfect and i do have my thoughts on it however john absolutely enjoyed this show and i would like to give him the spotlight to uh give us his thoughts first i absolutely loved this movie i i mean it's not the first disabled person disabled people living with non-disabled people and the non-disabled people being the ones taken advantage of or vice versa. It's by no means a very bizarre situation that exists in this world. But at the same time, I feel like this was a very well-written story. I feel like the beats were hit exactly where they were supposed to be. I really did believe every person's emotion at every point of the film. And, oh man, this movie made me want to cry, but it also made me want to burn the world down. And that, to me, is what I ask for. When I watch a movie, for the, especially like something that doesn't have a series or, or a big backstory following it. Like If I'm going to just walk into a movie that I don't know anything about, I want to have some emotional tie to it. And this movie just played with my emotions the whole time. And while it ended very Pixar, very Disney-esque, it still felt like the best possible way to end the last five minutes of the movie. Because just from where I've been, what I've seen, the people I've met, and even the community that is the deaf community, like, what I've learned about them, it, it, this movie did them all of the justice. And I felt like it, it, it just, it mattered. It deserved to be, the story deserved to be told, and it was told in a very eloquent, very relatable, emotionally controlling, but also emotionally growing 
film, and, and it was just awesome. I loved this movie. Yeah, I thought that uh, the movie itself was um, overall. I, I will give it praise. I will. I will start with what I liked about it. What I thought worked well. Um, the acting, first and foremost, was on point in so many ways that that it was. Yeah, I, I don't have any complaints about how they acted. The uh, the emotions were clearly there, even though they're doing sign language and they're not really speaking. And there's a whole the, the whole that whole portion of the story with her and her family, I thought was really well done. And I thought the the interactions between everybody involved with that was was good. Um, overall, is this movie worth watching? Yes. I'm not going to say that it's not worth watching. I think that, that because John and I do have differing opinions on this movie, that basically speaks for itself right there. Um, you're going to make of it what you will. My wife and I do not feel this was best picture worthy at all. Um, while it's definitely good, and it's definitely worthwhile, and probably worth the nomination, I felt that Macbeth was a far better product overall. Macbeth, in my opinion, is flawless and and was not only deserving of the Best Picture nomination, I think it should have beat this movie out. Uh, this movie basically ticks all the boxes for your Oscar bait film. It's, you know, struggling family with a disability, and they're having trouble getting by because their fishing business isn't isn't as profitable as it used to be because as the fishing business has grown, the, the unions are getting tighter and costs are getting more expensive, and, and so there's that aspect. And then I think what really soured the movie for me was the kind of very awkward and seemingly forced teenage romance that I think you could have just cut out of the movie completely or had just kind of more in the backdrop in the long run because it, it just felt so... It's like, I, I'm not a teenager, so that part does not appeal to me at all. And it might appeal to other teenagers. And so maybe this really does work as a family movie. You know, if you have young kids growing up, I, th- I think it's it's fine for that. I mean, there's certainly some... Actually, I think all the dirty words were just signed words. I don't think anybody actually said a single swear in this film, if I'm remembering correctly. And so it's not... It's definitely something that you can watch with Grandma. And I think that's probably why it wins in the end, is Macbeth is definitely more mature. There's not really something that you want to watch at, at a family reunion, whereas this movie, you know, you put on, it's very wholesome, feel-good. Um, of course, the teenage romance isn't my biggest issue. My biggest problem and the most jarring plot hole in this entire movie that was either overlooked or I don't know how you got past this one was the treatment of the family members because they're deaf. We have so much technology that talking with deaf people and treating them regularly like normal 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 ass Americans or just people in general, excuse me, is not really that hard to do. Um, that's probably the biggest thing I had, and they did that to tr- try and force contrive some drama into the into the movie and to make it feel like, oh, you know, these guys, they're just, nobody likes them, and nobody gets along because they're deaf, and it's like, 
if I came across a deaf person, the first thing I'm doing is pulling out my phone and going speech to text. Like, I'll just say everything and they can read it on a screen. We, literally, mo- pretty much every single, like, we have a specific council in the United States that makes sure that if you are deaf, you will get the assisted resources you need to communicate and function with the rest of society. And so the fact that they tried to, if they had set this movie in, like, the 60s or 70s or something, that probably would have played better as far as whether or not they had a struggle to communicate and get along with their community. It's 2022, people. Or this movie takes place in 2021. Everyone has smartphones. Everyone has the capability of communicating in different forms and different mediums. I mean, you can't tell me that these people don't know how to use that technology, okay? They've been around long enough that they know how to communicate and function with, with their disability. And so I just, I don't, I'm not trying to downplay the, the fact that, oh, you know, they're, they're doing, they did something wrong. It's just, it's the fact that that was such an oversight just to contrive more drama. And that's really what I did not I like about the film overall. completely disagree. Okay. Um, well, I disagree. And be no, wrong. and no, but I, I, the reason I disagree is because I took an ASL class in 2019. I learned quite a bit about the deaf community and quite a bit about the struggle that it is to be deaf. But in terms of this movie and in terms of the family, uh, I remember growing up in a small Christian family in a world that was leaning more and more towards anti-Christian in, in, in the most like non-confrontational sense, just like, oh, if you don't believe in evolution, you're an idiot. If you believe in the young earth, you're an idiot. And I think this movie, like, especially when it comes to the daughter and her experience where she talks about when she joined school, she talked funny because the only time she could talk was, you know, trying to mimic her parents who could not talk because they couldn't hear the sound of their own voice. And I don't know if you've ever heard a deaf person try to talk, but it is painful. Um, not to like not even being rude it's just that is their and they even say it themselves but when it comes to a family that is mostly deaf and the youngest member of that family is the talking one they've already adapted to the world and we watch in this movie as they like the daughter straight up says mom if you stopped calling them bad names maybe you would give them a chance to actually like get to know you and you would take the time to get to know them. In so, in the case of the technology thing, we watch the brother have a text in person conversation with a non deaf person, literally iPhone, like they just are texting each other from across the bar the two feet across from each other. So, so all the I, things I, you're saying that they they didn't do, the thing that I, I see more than anything is that like we're watching it from the deaf family's perspective and just like growing up in the Christian family, I can name all the times that I felt anti-Christian rhetoric from people around me that like I would never call a bully, especially not by today's standards, but it did influence me greatly. It made me more defiant. It made me want to believe harder and prove them wrong harder. And I just got more indignant that they were wrong and I was right. And I think that's the same thing we're watching is this family is like, no, we're deaf. We're disabled. You come to us, not us come to you. And it, they're both wrong. Like, both parties need to be empathetic to 
the situation, the context of the situation. And I think this movie took so much time to show you the separate context where the the school children are just saying what they heard. They're making fun of deaf people in general, and she's not even friends with them. She's not technically around them, but they saw her. They go, I remember I heard a story. Let me make fun of deaf people. Oh, I got a laugh from my lunch table. That, I, I've seen it a million times. So, I've been so the butt gotta, of a million gotta, jokes. Yeah, so I see where you're coming from, and the points you're touching on are not the points that I had a problem with. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying. Yes, she was made fun of because she talked like a deaf person, and she was, you know, yes, they make their jokes. Those aren't the issues that I have. I'm aware that high school kids are still high school kids, and so I, that's not the issue I have. What I have an issue with is what you're implying, the, the fact that they created the dependency on her because she could hear, is that it, it only works if they, like, lived in a cave until 2021. Paying um, a low-level I mean, worker I, is outrageously <laughs> expensive in America. All right, Curion has Can an I outsider just... perspective looking in, since unfortunately he was, he will get to the movie later, probably tweet his thoughts. Yeah, yeah. So, just to provide a little bit of perspective, um, any differences from people, or, or at least from the norm has a tendency to encourage that group to become insular. Okay? We've seen this countless times. Okay? Um, a really good example would be something like the Jewish community. The Jewish community has a tendency to be insular, and the reason why they have a tendency to be insular is because they have very legitimate reasons for being afraid of outsiders. The problem is... Their almost internalized xenophobia causes more xenophobia. Similar things happen in the deaf community overall. I have several friends that sign. Um, I'm very good friends with a couple of people that work in the translation community for, uh, for deaf people. And you do see that it becomes a very insular community and they tend to shut out the hearing world because... Um, I guess the best way to put it is when you're rejected by society, it just pushes you into your group a lot more, which I believe is, is a little bit of John's point here too. Um, so I understand where both of you are coming from and it's a very different perspective, but I feel like at the end of the day, while we as not members of that community can make that well, if they just kind of opened up and were with us more and willing to adapt, um, you know, things would be better. At the same time, their life experience may point them in the opposite direction. So I think there's a little bit of there's a little bit of mindfulness that I think we all have to have as everybody's experiences clouds their current being. So if they've had very negative experiences with the hearing world. Maybe they don't really want to be a part of the hearing world. And that's why we're seeing the reluctance to embrace adaptive technology. And that's that's very that's a very good point overall, Carrion. And I, I, I can see where I think it's because of the perspective and interactions that I've had and I've seen mostly from from what like I don't I don't necessarily have any 
deaf friends myself, um, except for John growing up, but that's neither here nor there. Um, what I do know is that I, it's for me, it's from my perspective, it's putting my, I try to see what I would do in those situations in the movie. And I think the biggest complaint that I have is the choir teacher's response to the whole situation. The guy is a straight up douchebag about it. And again, any teacher in the current era is not going to, to hold it against a prospective college student because she's trying to help her disabled. Th- I just, that, that was probably the part that really pissed me off the most. Now, I see what you're saying, Corio, and I think you, you make a valid point. And yes, John, you do make a valid perspective in that they would probably self-isolate because they don't, you know, it's, it does create a barrier. It's just for me in that situation, if I have, if I have worked with a couple of people who were deaf before, and I mean, we communicated just fine. I didn't treat them any differently. I, you know, we just, you know, we, we communicated via text and there was no issue. And so I, I guess it was the way that they tried to portray that isolationism it just didn't quite come across the way that 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 I think it should have to really get the point across. And then maybe I just missed it, maybe out of my own ignorance, my own arrogance, um, which is entirely possible. It just a lot of the drama just felt played up and contrived is what I'm really getting at. And like, like I said, the biggest offense to me was the choir teacher who was like, oh, you know, you blew me off again. And it's like, dude. Her whole family's deaf, and she's the reason that's it. Just shut, just shut up, shut up. Go away. Go off screen. Go rewrite your character and try to come back with making more sense. That's all I have to say to him. Otherwise, he was a good character, well acted. It was just so. It, I thought his arrogance part. was so awesome, <sighs> especially in. Yeah, it went in, too far. It was too convoluted. No, no, that is a no, point I, I will not concede. Is the choir teacher being a douche? No, no. I think that was the best example of it because. Especially from her perspective, what did she tell the teacher? Oh, I'm sorry, I have to deal with family stuff. And so what does the teacher say? Family's more important than my class that I'm trying to give you free lessons for. What she should have said was, I am an underage worker working a job that literally prevents my family from going to jail or losing their livelihood, to which then, yes, maybe... The actor, the, the character of the, the the teacher would have had a different opinion, but I think that like his arrogance versus her inability to translate her situation, like even though she's been the translator for her family forever, she's more literal translation. She and and she even chooses when to not say certain things. Um, and I, and I think that is really the big thing is she's more about being reserved, not being seen as weak, not being seen as tired, not being seen as overextended so much. So to the point that her teacher just assumes that she's being a bad teenager or a typical teenager and not an actually like contributing member of society who's being forced to do more work than any teenager should ever be forced to do. Yeah, and, like, and that's most translators that's probably, are paid thousands of dollars an hour. See, but we're not given a proper resolution to that because I guess you could say no. that when he comes back and he helps her with the audition, that's kind of like his way of of recognizing, oh, I I made a mistake. I, there's just no 
they don't confront the issue. They don't confront the fact that he was being extremely arrogant and extremely rude about it. And how I think that's really How often do we problem. in real life? Huh? How how often do teachers ever get put in their place and actually change? How often do people get called arrogant and actually become less arrogant? I think this movie really showed the human of both of them. She was unable to express her actual situation, and therefore her teacher felt like he was just dealing with a complainy child rather than dealing with a hyper-matured child. And... And, and, and I think that was like the only thing that really frustrated me with the resolution of the movie is it really seemed like their lives went fine after she left. Like, I would have much rather just seen her audition roll credits. And we're done. Like, we don't know if they get better. We don't know if they learn their lessons because in real life, nine times out of ten, nobody learns from the mistakes they just made. Yeah, or that, even well, knows was, they made mistakes. There was mistakes. no way she was not not getting in because if you can get a singer performer that can sign while also singing i mean that's exactly like there's definitely a job for the interpreter forever um yep so there i knew once once she once her family came into the audition and she started signing for them i was like ah yeah she got it there's just that come on there's no way if they then i really would have hated this movie if she didn't get in for that i would have been like this movie's just stupid but overall like I said, it's good. It's worth checking out. I do recommend it. I may watch it again in the future. It's not bad. It's just I have certain things that I didn't like that I've articulated that I think could have either been maybe they could have just gone a better way about showing that because it just it feels like I don't know. It feels like there was just some elements missing, some smaller elements that could have really turned this into a masterpiece. Whereas Macbeth, like I said, to me is perfection. I don't think there's any getting better on that. I didn't see anything wrong with that movie, and that's where that's where my comparison comes from as to why I don't I don't think Coda deserved Best Picture because it's it it's not without its flaws, and it definitely could have worked some things better. Um, but overall, is it good? Absolutely, it's definitely worthy of the nomination. This is not this is not a bad movie. It's just. Like I said, I think it got a little more praise because they played up on the concept, which I also do want to say, too, they executed the concept very well. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll give it praise where it's due because uh, I was very blown away by the fact how seamless the signing and the translation and all of it was put together. Um, and then it also culminates in some very, very beautiful scenes when when the father asks her to sing and while he's doing so, he starts to put his fingers on her throat so he can feel the vibrations. I've, I've, that part really almost got to me, and even just thinking about it. So it's not without its charm. Definitely a great family movie. I would absolutely recommend Family Movie Night 100%. Watch this film and, and decide for yourself. It's just, like I said, there's things that my experience in life that this movie tried to put forth that I'm just like, uh, no. <laughs> so... It is. Even that's what we're here for: is to share our ideas and share share what we got. So, John, any any more thoughts regarding uh, regarding Coda? Uh, just one thing that we should mention, especially for Carrion, who hasn't seen it yet. The whole situation takes place over one semester of high school, 
she went from never playing in the choir to then playing in the choir to then the choir teacher getting to know her, which I think is actually a major important piece. The the choir teacher had no relationship with this girl, and she like like from there the story begins, and I think that's actually an important piece to mention because like if we had a time lapse of their whole life. I would probably lean more towards Parker. Like there are way many, like way more ways to adapt to a bad situation. But in like learning to adapt in three to six months is next to impossible. Um, especially if you've never adapted before. And I think that was, I think something that was something that was hard to tell that was going on in the movie. Like it kind of felt like we were watching a whole year of high school, but it turns out we were literally only watching the final semester of senior year. Yeah, and I really think that putting as much effort and focus into the into the into the awkward teenage romance really just kind of soured it more. It was awkward and teenage, huh? I said it was awkward and teenage. It, <laughs> right, and it was a little too. Didn't disagree with that. that at any point. <laughs> yeah, and, and that was like I don't know. For me, that was just like okay, I want to move on. To the, I get it. I, I did this before. Don't need to remind myself again. Yes, okay. Horrible memories flooding back. Let's let's get to the next scene. So yeah, there might be more personal bias in what I didn't like about this movie overall, but it, it's it's it, like I said, there's certain things that I think could have done done better, and we'll just have to see what Corion's follow up thoughts are at a later time uh, because I definitely would like to hear Corion. And I'm not actually not a I'm not opposed to coming back to this movie maybe next week for like a little 15 20 minute Corion's rant or praise on on this one. But uh, I think we've said all we can say on this, and so with that we'll just transition to our final sort of surprise, not really big deal segment. Uh, Corion, what? Uh, yes, sir. What games are you playing these days? Uh, well, right now, I've gotten into Northgard. It's a Viking-themed uh, real-time strategy that plays a lot like the old Majesty series. What was it called again? Um, Northgard. Northgard. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's on GOG, it's on Steam, it's basically everywhere. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. Um, the whole Viking... Uh, concept plays very very well to being an explorer and you know uh, like an explorer a you know solidify your position and you know expand through force if needed kind of uh, scenario um i felt it had a very interesting take on the rts genre and they're still producing content for it which i think is fantastic they're up to something like 30 or 40 pieces of DLC, it almost feels like. At this point, um, they released the eight, I believe, major clans and then released a whole bunch of subordinate clans, which was a fantastic piece. So is it? you said it's an RTS. Is it turn-based or...? Uh, no, real-time. Uh, oh, okay. Real-time, live, no, no turn-based. Um, so I was just I noticed the basic some of the... Premise some of the graphics on here kind of look reminiscent of Civilization. That's why I wanted to clarify. No, fair enough. Uh, the basic premise is, so long as you can keep your, your Vikings fairly happy and, uh, you know, I guess in mead, I guess is the best way to think about it. Um, they will keep producing a new uh, civilian every so many turns. 
or like, or well, not turns every so many seconds. And then you can apply them to whatever job you need them to do. So some might wind up being uh, woodsmen, some might be hunters, some might be farmers, some are warriors. And then leveraging their ability to get to places and do things and gather the resources that you need in the various areas is the key to success. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know I'm obviously distracted here. Um, this looks quite right up my alley, to be perfectly honest. Um, what? Uh, so what exactly... Tell us some of the some of the epic tales that you've experienced in this game, if you if you can. Just some of the ah, uh, definitely. So one of the things that so I was playing on a map with a few friends, and we encountered on the same map dwarves, giants, dark elves, um, and all of them had different needs and different wants to get them on their side, and everybody had a different philosophy on how to deal with these creatures. Um, because of the kind of uh, clan I was playing at the time, I decided to try to use them as allies. So, for example, allying with the dwarves, giving them resources and what have you, will give you two dwarven workers that you can put to work in a forge, and they produce some fantastic gear for you. Uh, working with the giants gave you a giant warrior. Working with the dark elves means simply they don't steal your stuff, they steal from everyone else. So what I wound up doing is in order to maintain my neutrality, I actually hid the Dark Elf territory behind my territory, allied with them significantly, and used them as like a cat's paw to attack my rivals to slow down their progress for me to advance. Um, you know, this was generally referred to by my friends as the Loki strategy. Um <laughs> It also let me build up enough and make friends with the giants, so I had some big guys to take on a dragon that happened to be living in the center of the map, which increased my fame and wealth and what have you to win the victory. Okay, so, so it's not like a traditional RTS like Age of Empires where you just build up armies and you throw them at each other. This actually has like different uh, creatures and goals to go after? Absolutely. You can go after an economic victory where you, you win by economic influence or economic power. You can win by fame. Um, you know, your your realm is so vastly superior to everyone else that the other the other clans just simply give up because they can't possibly deny your right for rule. Uh, or you can also go for conquest and just pummel your enemies into submission the good old-fashioned Viking way. Uh, each map uh, will have its own unique victory scenarios that are possible. For example, on one of the maps that uh, I ran into... I found the Anvil of the Gods and was able to forge a divine weapon for Odin. And in doing so, he, he gave me his favor, and that's how I won the map. Uh, I've also been absolutely crushingly defeated at times. Uh, there was a map where I simply could not generate enough food to feed my Vikings, and they all starved. And uh, yeah, I got absolutely obliterated on it. Uh, the story mode is brutally hard, at least to me. Um, there is no easy mode. There is normal, hard, and really frigging out of this world hard. Uh, I've been playing on hard for the most part. Is that the I had to go down to normal. Name? Yeah, well, not you know really brutal hard. I think it's just brutal. Uh, but honestly, a little disappointing. Yeah, but honestly, <laughs> it feels like there's like a a you know n you know a normal hard, and then I, I believe it's brutal. 
but it probably should be you're kidding yourself if you can succeed that to think that you can succeed at this level of gameplay. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic game. I recommend giving it a try. I'm probably going to. Um, is this a paradox game? By mm. chance, or do you know who, who made it? Okay, it's okay if you don't off the top of it because it sounds very grand strategy. It sounds like it sounds similar to grand strategy in the in the Stellaris sense, where it's like super involved and there's different victories. But this also seems like a little bit more of a mellow version. So it doesn't seem to be. This doesn't look super complicated. Um, no, it it's really not. Uh, it's made by uh, Shiro Games, actually. Okay. Okay. So yeah, it looks like they took they just give you more options to win instead of uh here, go kill all these people, which I mean could be fun, don't get me wrong, but it does get pretty stale after like the first twenty times. Uh cool. Yeah. Well I might have to check that out this week. John, what are you uh what are you currently playing? Uh, right now I'm switching between Elden Ring and Tiny Tina's Wonderland. Tiny Tina's Wonderland just dropped on the 24th of March, so the day after our last stream. Um, that is a it's a fun game. They finally just embraced the fact that they're gonna be a very tabletop esque. Uh, it's it it embraces the idea that it's basically a recreation of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I think they called it Bunkers and or. Yeah, Bunkers and Badasses is what they call it in the game. Um, But it actually introduces you to the mechanics of typical tabletop D&D-style games with also just completely acknowledging that it is set in the uh, Borderlands universe. Um, I haven't gotten much past the first boss, the tutorial boss, um in Tiny Tina's Wonderlands, but as far as the guns, everything goes, it's it's really fun. Um it, it your your character is playing somebody else's game within the game. And it's just a really easy game to play and it's actually one of the first like competitive or not competitive co op couch co op games I've played in a long time that, like, me and my wife got into, surprisingly, just for our own reasons, while playing together. Um, That feels like something that hasn't come out recently in a long time. It feels like couch co-op went from, like, a thing that used to be necessary to they just gave up on it, but this game really just adds it back in, and it's very similar to Halo. Like, only one of you is the newbie, but you're both the newbie. Um... And I think that's really fun. I find it to just be so interesting. And I love the break from Borderlands. Like, I love the style and the art of Borderlands, but I was getting tired of the vault hunters and the vaults and the, oh, there's an even bigger planet with even more treasure. It's like, okay, cool. Whatever. This one's just like, no, we're going to give you all the Borderlands guns, all the Borderlands, like, rules, but then we're also going to put in a... A, a D&D tabletop uh, game in top, on top of it, and it's... Oh, I just find it so fun. So what have you... Uh, are there any specific instances that you can recall that you that, that, that are worth mentioning that you'd want to get... So if you were trying to get someone excited to play this game, what would you... Uh, what would so, you tell them? There's a... 
complete custom characters at the start. Uh, when I say newbie, like they go with the D&D definition of a newbie. Here is your character sheet. You decide what your character's background is, where they came from, what their special is ultimately supposed to look like. Not necessarily like, here's your special, start the game in god mode. Instead, it's like, this is what you're working towards with your class. And then from there, it's very much back to the Borderlands style, where it's a first-person shooter... You are still walking around a town. You can loot and it, looter shooter, I should say. You open boxes. You collect money. I haven't gotten to the point where like I'm spending money yet, but I've gotten through this. If you see here in the image, they're like walking around on a more tabletop esque map, um, which is their like version of fast travel, which I think is so fun because it's always been referenced in a lot of games that draw their lineage from D&D but very rarely actually been portrayed and when you finally like go on that tabletop it's like fast traveling across the town very similar to like Pokemon but then it sends you in these with they, they call them encounters uh, or random encounters and it brings you right back to that FPS like you don't fight in that tabletop setting instead in that tabletop setting you get a couple extra buttons to do minor things to adjust your travel but that's it it's like travel only get into the game get into the first person shooter when it's time to be a first person shooter and it makes it feel yeah it breaks from the immersion of the first person but it doesn't break from the immersion of the game because the game opens telling you that you are playing a tabletop right out the gate. Just you are playing a tabletop within this universe. And I think that's so nice because like, that's what a lot of people do when they play D and D is they, they still have all of their real world thoughts and they want to ask the game master, well, can I still like, can I create a gun? And in some dungeon masters, like they're like, yeah, we can we can account for that. In this case, the whole game accounts for that. But the gun doesn't make you OP. You still have to go and do all the fights. You still have to kill the bad guys. And rather than trying to figure out how to use a whole new weapon mechanic, like a new sword and dodge and roll, instead it's just like, no, you're your guns in D and D. And, but you still have to fight. You still have to get your kills. You still have to like protect each other. And I think that's just so much fun that it acknowledges all the different levels of games while still respecting the world that it's set in. Right on. Yeah. Now looking at some of this gameplay, I mean, again, it looks like we got another another good uh, good solid recommendation here. So I'm probably going to have to to check this out. Um, if you liked right, well, any of the Borderlands, you'll love this one. It's uh, I never got around to playing it, and I've had everybody tell me that, oh, you need to play Borderlands. It's like, I, I probably do, and I probably will get around to it. Um, but we will uh, move on to my segment that I'm going to pull up here in a second. I'm just trying something new a little bit. This is a game that I have been playing, and I want to do a full-on showcase when when the time comes. This is something I have been playing since it launched 12 years ago, and that is, of course, 
Star Trek Online. Uh, Star Trek Online is the official Star Trek massive multiplayer online role-playing game. Now, what I love about this game is that it has, over the years, it, it kind of started out as something that was initially serious, but over the years, it became what is now known as the Star Trek, as a Star Trek theme park. Um, basically, you have all eras and all universes, as you can see on the screen, even coming from the Kelvin timeline, and you have, it's, it's pretty much what I call the official Star Trek neutral zone. You have everything ranging from 23rd century classic James T. Kirk Trek all the way to the newest Kurtzman Trek, which, you know, say what you will about that. If it's what you're into, we're not going to get into that right now. Um, I think that's a fantastic platform to have because I think it's in true Trek form where even if you don't like some of the newer Star Trek stuff, it's not remotely required to, e required to even touch or to play to enjoy the game. You can play this game playing only whatever storylines you want to play. Um, if I was trying to get somebody interested in this game, the first and foremost, the customization. Uh, this has some of the best customization of any MMO out there, and I have played quite a few of them. Uh, it's very easy. Right out of the gate, you even, just without spending any money, have a variety of, of outfits and uniforms to choose from. You can dress yourself. You can dress your crew. There's just a ton of it. Well, guess what? The customization doesn't just end with your character. The ship customization is also something to note that is extremely impressive. Usually, most of the ships have three different class types, and you can mix and match all the different pieces to create your own combination of starship that you want to fly. And they also changed it in recent years to where you can basically fly any in-game level ship pretty much from level 10 plus. So it's very user-friendly. Easily the most casual-friendly MMO RPG out there on the market. It is not doesn't require a huge commitment to get into. Not a huge... Uh, it, it, the leveling up is very fast, so you can get to max level fairly quickly. It's really about the in-game. Of course, uh, a lot of members of the community argue that Space Barbie is this game's true in-game, and having had my fair share of Space Barbie, I would have to say that is absolutely true. So I definitely recommend, if you're looking for something casual that's Star Trek-themed or even just sci-fi space-themed, uh, this game, it, it, it's learning curve is, I wouldn't say it's super steep. I mean, it is an MMO, so it's not like, you know, you just plug and play right away. Um, it's available on PC as well as Xbox and PlayStation. Unfortunately, this is probably the one downside right now. No cross-play compatibility. Um, and not sure if that's going to necessarily be a thing in the future or not. But that is probably one of the big drawbacks to it. As well as the... Ground gameplay is also fairly weak, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, no game's perfect. It definitely has its its ups and its downs. And so, yes, I would absolutely recommend if, if you uh, have the inclination to, to check it out. You can start, you can play as a Klingon. You can start as a 23rd century temporal agent. You can play as 25th century Federation. You can play as a Romulan. Romulan's storyline in of itself is really good. Some of the best that the game ever cranked out. And uh, they're currently running a Mirror Universe arc, which recently featured Kate Mulgrew reprising not only reprising her role as Catherine Janeway, and also introducing a new role as Marshall Janeway from the Terran Empire Mirror Universe. 
she's not the only Star Trek vet to ever be featured on this game. Uh, the first I want to say was Chase Masterson when she replies, reprised her role as Lita. And uh, from then on, a lot of the a lot of the other Trek vets have come back into the into the fold. Uh, one of the biggest ones being um, J.G. Hertzler reprising his role as as General Martok. Um, also, you have Michael Dorn as Worf, um, Tony Todd as uh, he's not Kern; he's his his renamed character, which escapes me at the time at the moment. And, uh, of course, finally, uh, or not finally, but many others, as well as Jeffrey Combs, who actually reprised his, his famous roles of Wayun as well as Brunt, FCA. So, lots of Star Trek history in, involved with this game, and it is definitely worth the time. 